welcome to episode 243 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This episode was engineered on Monday, 11th of May, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Colton Reed, and this is another long show. Now, I'm okay with the lockdown extended episode, and I hope you are too. Today's show is a chat with podcaster Jack Thurston, author of the Lost Lanes series of books. Now, until doing the background research for this show, I hadn't realised Jack has a political background, and you can hear us discuss discussing, arguing, discussing, discussing, uh, whether cycling is a left-wing thing or not. So I have got Jack Thurston with me today. So this is like an inside baseball kind of show. So we're both podcasters. Uh, Jack, has been, how, Jack, how long have you been doing the bike show? Well, the bike show started in 2004 as a radio show on Resonance FM in London. And then it, um, a list, I got an email from a listener in 2005 saying, can you make your radio program into a podcast? And I kind of looked, I didn't know what podcast was. And so I looked at, looked it up and it looked incredibly geeky. And I thought, oh, well, this is, this, this sounds, but this sounds good. This means that people can listen, you know, even if they live more than five kilometers from our radio antenna, which is where, um, you know, where, where we were in London, I thought this, this is great. Um, I, I, instead of speaking to a tiny corner of Southeast London, I can speak to the world. So yeah, 2005, I think was, was May 2005, which is kind of around about the birth of podcasting. Mm. So it was a radio show in London. The Resonance FM is what? Resonance FM is officially a community fm station which is is this kind of um sort of so amateur stations um have access to this quite low powered fm uh, signal that they can use but resonance is kind of i think it's a cut above your typical community radio station it's it describes itself as an art radio station or a radio art station um and it's it, it, it's got a lot of things that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Um, look, strange stuff like 12 hours rock climbing up some um, rocky face in the mountains that just recorded everything and just played it out as the guy climbed up the mountain. Um, or, or unusual music, um, interesting cultural discussions, um, sound art, all kinds of stuff. It's really good. It's really good. And, and I think they thought that there was a, an interesting interconnection between cycling and bicycles and creativity and ingenuity and the arts and I kind of made a pitch and um and there it was yeah so I had a half an hour a week um on that but when I moved down to Wales in 2013 
um, it was very difficult to just keep supplying them because I didn't have access to the studio. So the the the, sh- the podcasts dwindled somewhat, as my listeners um, will be <laughs> very much aware. I imagine there are quite a few people listening to your podcast who also listen to mine. So, um, but for those that don't, um, it's not. It's become a little less regular um over the years since since leaving london really just because you haven't got a radio station cracking the whip saying you know 6 30 you know there you are in the in the studio you've got to do something it's like oh should i do a podcast this week oh no i've got to you know weed the garden or mind the kids or write a travel guidebook or whatever other things that you have to do in life so, other than podcasting so i did go to your studio because i was on your show a number of years ago i think it was john yeah. stevenson was on the show and we were talking about was there has been a bike boom has there not been a bike boom not now that's a very pertinent question because yes there is even though at the time i was saying actually no there isn't john and this is the argument of my book but now we do have a bike boom so all of that cultural significance arty all of these things that were coming intertwined in your show then are now coming in just a, a blooming now jack is there is there data on that, Carlton? And, and I presume you're talking about coronavirus, lockdown, yes. bike boom. Uh, so very, quite recent, really, because we're only, what are we, six, eight weeks into coronavirus era. Um, and is there data on, on, on this kind of stuff? Because the data you and I tend to look at is sort of travel surveys, annual ca- traffic counts and things like that. But it, well, what are your indicators that there is a bike boom? There are... Um, traffic counters that are picking up um a rise like 200 percent rise um in in various boroughs of london also there's those kind of stuff but where i'm getting most of my and it's anecdotal but where i'm getting most of my stuff from is um trade only websites that bike shops plug into and they are saying almost identical things that bike shops in the 1970s American bike boom were saying, which was, we can't get bikes for love no money. People are traveling from all over the country because we've got a bike. And virtually all the bike shops that are open have have had the the last two weeks have been their best ever um, trading in, in, you know, 30, 40 years of being in business. It's what I'm hearing. Not all bike shops are open. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, and it's exactly the same in the US. You know, the US are exactly the same. So when I did a story on Forbes the other day about the 1970s bike boom, that's gaining traction in the US like you wouldn't believe because people didn't realize, a lot of people didn't realize, like millennials didn't realize that we've been here before. There was, in fact, a much, much bigger boom than the mountain bike boom, for instance, was happening in the 1970s. And when you go and look at the 1970s anecdotes from bike shops talking about how they can't get stock, it's exactly the same now. But that bike boom took four years. This one's taken two weeks. It really has ripped Mm. through the bike industry. So my my question for you is what, because what I found very interesting from your description of the American bike boom in the 1970s in your book is that it was basically a leisure-oriented bike boom. It wasn't anything to do with the oil crisis. It came before the oil mm. crisis. It was it was to do with manufacturing of 10-speed, you know, racing bikes and a kind of certain amount of fashion and baby boomers and, and that kind of kind of conjunction of of phenomena. Um but and and, and 
with everyone working from home or shut out shut out of their workplaces apart from you know a handful of key workers or not a handful but you know a, a relatively small part of the population is this current bike boom leisure based as well because it's literally two weeks we don't know but yeah, yeah. i mean is, is, are people buying bikes because they're cooped up in their houses the government has said you can go for a walk a run or a or a cycle there's no traffic on the roads um i mean i've certainly noticed it in abergavenny where i live which is a small town in the in in, in wales in not far from the english border um which you know has got a good sort of road club and cycling community but nobody really rides bikes here you know you wave and say hi to people if you see someone else on a bike here uh, which is a remarkable coming from london in 2013 um but i definitely have noticed more families out people you know couples out not wearing helmets you know your typical sort of people who just like oh cycling is a nice way just to poodle around the hedgerows and get a bit of exercise and and i can do it safely because there's no traffic exactly that's that's absolutely what's happening around the 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 country certainly in urban areas that's i mean i i live on a like a country lane but in a in a big city and it's just it's just family after family after family are coming past uh some of them are are clearly keenies and you know that the whole family's probably been bursting to to get out but then there are lots of families who are like I, I bet this is the first time they've been out as a family on a bike on a public road, pretty much ever. Yeah, and yeah, you're right. So it's an awful lot of it is is uh, recreational. Some of that will rub off to transportation cycling eventually. Uh, but anyway, I'm asking the questions, Jack. This is very naughty of you. Yeah, you I was are. wondering. That's true. I was Sorry. wondering how long it would take <laughs> before you start asking me questions, but. Let's go back. We can get back to the bike boom later. Um, let's go into Abergavenny and let's go into 2013, that life change. So why did you yeah. move in 2013? Who did you move with and why Abergavenny? Well, I w- I, the answer to that is, is basically my wife. Um, <laughs> um, she is originally, her family is originally from here. Um, she Her business is gardens plants gardening um she's a garden designer um and landscape designer and we were living in a small flat in central london with no garden and she had an opportunity to look after the garden that had belonged to her grandmother um which is really nice and we were expecting a baby and we just thought well i just thought i'm totally up for this she wanted to move because of the garden and and you know being in a more sort of natural setting and all her family connections down here and i thought you know what time just is passing too quickly in in london i've been i've lived in london for well all my life really i had a couple of years away in in california when i did my master's degree and then i was away for undergraduate basically i, I was i'm a londoner and the years were just going past i don't know as you get older you feel like the years just just whiz by and you don't remember it, exactly what there was a difference between what was happening in 2002, 2007, 2009. They just kind of repeated themselves almost. And so I was ready for a change. And I just thought, yeah, let's do it. And it was really it was really exciting. And I mean, it's great for cycling down here. The town sort of promotes itself as the Welsh capital of cycling, um, which is maybe a little bit optimistic. Um, but, you know, we have got there is good cycling in every direction and there's a there's a decent cycling community as as it were very much on the sports side a good youth club 
um, for kids learning cyclocross and mountain biking and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been, uh, we haven't looked back really. I mean, I still love London when I go, but I haven't been, when I went last went up to London just before the lockdown, I hadn't been for two years um, before that. So, um, you know, it's there in my mind. Um, but to be honest, I've, I've doing what I do with writing cycling travel books. I, it's been other parts of the country that I've been going to um, since since moving down here. So, Jack, this is why I've got you on the show. We are going to talk about that, of course. We're going to talk about it at great length. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, the history of cycle touring uh, and and where you fit into that with your cloth badges for you know cotton duck uh, panniers or wherever people are, are putting their their cloth badges. Uh, and I do want to get into that, but. I'm interested in 2013 because 2013 is obviously a key year because you moved, but it's also when you first started doing Lost Lanes. So was that move and Lost Lanes, are they connected? Well, it takes a little bit of time to write a book, as I think you're more than aware, (laughs) Carlton. Um, They don't just pop out. The publication date um is is sometimes misleading um as to the genesis of of a book um no i mean i like to to say that and and it's the way i feel about it is that is that writing lost lanes in 2012 which is when i did the bulk of the research um and the actual photography and the writing was a kind of farewell tour of all my favorite cycling haunts within you know a, a, a half an hour you know train ride from london basically the places that i've been cycling for the last 20 years either riding down to kent um hopping on a train um to a bit further afield or riding out to essex um so a few london rides as well in the book and it was basically my chance to do all these rides with some friends if i could rope them in and produce a book about it i mean the the the, the actual the actual story i don't know if i should give you the true story um is that my friend Daniel Start, who I have known since I was 12, 13, we were at school together and we started a cycling club at school in, in the sixth form because we didn't want to do like the boring games where you have to run around, um, you know, muddy pitches and get kind of ritually humiliated by horrible PE teachers and, and kind of sporty children. Um, uh, we, we started this cycling club, which was basically a cycle touring club. You know, we went, get the train out to, Hertfordshire with a packed lunch um uh, for a few hours and then come back um <laughs> and cycle maybe I don't know 25 miles or something like that so he he had written a very successful book about swimming in in nature called wild swimming which is all about swimming in lakes and waterfalls and, I've, 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 and, and in the I've sea I've got them because there's a coast one as well isn't there I've, I, I bought both of them at, yeah, at the time a, so yeah they're great book there's a coast one so we were cycling down the Northumberland coast towards where you live actually we'd got the train up to Berwick-upon-Tweed and we were heading down to Newcastle on a basically a research trip for him looking at wild swimming spots along the Northumberland coast for that very book you've got um and it was me him another guy Kieran and his dog in a trailer uh, in and out of a trailer kind of just while camping along the way and, and trying to take nice pictures of swimming spots and, and and find interesting places to swim um and we were just chatting to, you know as you do in the evening um about things and he was wanting to sort of set out on his own in the publishing enterprise and not be published by somebody else 
um but he was desperate to um uh, have a he, he, in order to it's a little it's a little bit tedious but basically in order to set up as a publisher and not be like a vanity press kind of self-publishing type of thing you need to have like a list of books that aren't just your own so he said look look, look just have you, have you can you do a cycling book um and I, i'd never written a book before um and he said oh, well you don't actually maybe you don't even need to write it but as long as we can just put it in the catalogue, then I can take the catalogue around the distributors and I will look like a legitimate yeah. publishing house and they will therefore stock my wild swimming books. Mm-hmm. You know, they will take on my wild swimming books. And so that's where kind of Lost Lanes came from, really, was was dreaming up an idea for for a book. And we went through loads of different kind of ideas of what might work. And I just... I mean, ultimately, Lost Lanes is is very much a kind of my interpretation of well not my interpretation um my reinterpretation of a book that's been around for ages you know a book i think i've got a book from 1899 called short spins around london during the bike boom of the 1890s it's just someone sharing their favorite rides and routes giving a little bit of description and color and and a few tips on on places to go and stop off along the way and get some food and drink and and that kind of thing um, and, you know, obviously taking the advantage of, of, you know, what you can do with a book now and how you can make a book with lots of beautiful colour photographs that you couldn't do in the 1890s. Well, they had lots of line illustrations then. They, had them, they, they had did. Some beautifully they did. evocative um, Patterson-type, you know, that's 1930s, of course, but... Just, yeah, pre-Patterson. But there were, there were before that, uh, there, was, there was stuff. So that, that's very much... You're, you're in the, the historic zeitgeist there because cycle touring books back then and today, they've got to evoke stuff. They've, they've, they've got to look pretty. They can't just be, you know, fantastic text. And I've got to say, the photography in your book uh, that you've, you've taken are, are, are wonderful. So that's, that's probably, for me... Perhaps more than fifty percent of the book. I'm sure your words are good, and I love your introduction in the in the latest one, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's the photography. You can just flick through that and think, "Well, I'm going for a ride." Then, and then I don't know how many people actually read every single word, but it's the photographs that get you out there. Would you agree that it's the the photographs are probably more important than the words? Yeah, and that was advice that Daniel, my publisher, gave me on the basis of his wild swimming books. That that you know his wild swimming books are full of beautiful pictures of people jumping in to waterfalls and diving off bridges and and that kind of thing. And it really does make you want to be there. Um, that's that's what my criterion is for whether I include a photograph in the book or whether I present it in a, you know big in the book because um, I do all the photo layout as well. Um, and it's about making people think i really want to be there and and that's you know that's i I do sometimes look at landscape photographers who 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 you know have a lot of kits have a lot of time plan their shoots really carefully and they produce incredible beautiful amazing results And, and and i i feel a bit insecure when i compare my stuff to their stuff but but my stuff is sort of slightly doing a different job. It's because these are actually photographs that I take while I'm out wrecking the rides. And so they are there at the moment. I don't have, I can't wait for the light to be a certain way at a certain place. I just have to take the photograph and just be lucky, I suppose. Um, but it's about, yeah, it's about, yeah, the photography, um, digital photography. I mean, 
is is made it possible for me as a, as a relatively amateur photographer um i would not have been able to afford to have all the film and processing that you would have had to have done if you wanted to take to uh, do a book like this in the 90s um and when, and when i look back at the books that i used to use in this sort of this kind of vein um i think of the nick mm. cotton book so you probably know nick cotton i don't i don't know i, I published one of his books um, yeah the the Oh, well, the family cycling guide. It was, uh, we got Nick Cotton to do yeah. that. There's all sorts, yeah. I mean, his books are great. The rides are great. Um, there was some useful information in them, very practical. But they didn't really make you want to go and do mm. them. They, it, they, they, if you knew what they were and you thought, okay, well, I can use this book as a tool. So I used to try and get my friends to come cycling with me, my housemates, living in the house share in, in, in Waterloo. And um, I was much more keen on cycling than than any some of them were, and so I just I realised that you couldn't just tell people, oh, we're going to go out to Kent and ride forty miles, like that was not appealing to people, um, or or people's partners, you know, friends bringing along their their partners, um, or new you know, new people who 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 hadn't done much cycling, kind of we're just going to go out to kent and cycle 40 miles but if you say oh we're going to go out to kent it's just the right time for the blossom in the in in all the fruit fields um we're going to visit six different kinds of windmill and then we're going to stop at this pub where they do a really good like certain kind of pie and we're going to sit in the garden and and have beer which is brewed just down the road and then we're we're going to at the end we're going to swing by this place where we can all have a jump in the river if it's warm you know that is a whole different proposition then you're actually basically saying, do you want to come and have a day out in the countryside? And it happens to be by bike rather than like, we're going to go out and cycle 40 miles. So, so the books, the books in a way are trying to kind of do that with the text. Cause I try and give the, the rides a theme or a story or some kind of connection that, that, that people can make with it. But, but then also with the photographs, you know, I'm able to do that. Um, I'm able to show, show what it, what it will feel like what it might feel like but then again it might not feel like that because i was there in april and you might be riding in october every bike ride is different and in a way i hope people don't feel disappointed if they don't see what is in the books but then i hope they will also be thrilled if they see something that's different from what's in the books but it's equally amazing and i'm I, i i feel confident that that is exactly what will happen because cycling is just such a wonderful way to to see a place so Jack, I've got I've got two books in front of me. So I've got your new one, The Lost Lanes North, which clearly I know an awful lot of the the roads you were you were you were doing there, and it's it it's a, it can be a bleak landscape uh, at the north. So your your photographs there have captured that really well. Uh, that you know the kind of the 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 the, the loneliness of the countryside, uh, where you don't maybe get those pies in a pub because you're probably about two hours from a pub that's going to have anything. <laughs> uh, when you're in Northumberland, but then I've got your uh, first book, the 2013 book, uh, which was in it was 36 glorious bike rides in southern England. And then I flick through, and then you see a woman in a flowery dress riding a bike. So this is not yeah. like hardcore. There are photographs of you where you look a bit more ha- hardcore, uh, so you look a bit more touring well, cyclisty. Uh, but then you've got photographs of people who are clearly not. And you're, you're, you're clearly out with them at the same time. So you're deliberately trying to, which is what I used to deliberately do with On Your Bike magazine, which was not take people, photographs of people in Lycra, basically. Try and spread it around. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not pathologically against lycra. I, if I go out for a, a sort of energetic blast around my local area, I will sometimes wear a pair of lycra shorts, and, and if it's hot and it kind of has a cooling effect on the body, um, and and it's comfortable. But if you're if you're, if I'm out for a whole day and I'm stopping for lunch and maybe having a cream tea or something like that, actually, I I feel a bit. I don't really like to wear that kind of tight-fitting clothing all day. I just like to wear normal clothes or sort of normal hiking, walking clothes that people would wear. Um, I, I just they feel that that's, that's practical and people should wear what they, what they feel comfortable in um, ultimately. And I, that, that picture, I think the one you're thinking of, um, is, is my wife, Sarah, and she just was wearing that dress, I think, because it was a hot day. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I I think I think it can be off-putting. I mean, we you know you 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 know this more than I do. I mean, you were doing this long before I, I I'd even started doing anything to do with cycling in the media. Um, you're presenting cycling as an activity for which you have to get togged up in a particular way, for which you have to get togged up in a particular way. Not that you can get togged up in a particular way, but that the, the activity, the bicycle, requires you to don a certain kind of uniform. I mean, I think that's obviously going to be off-putting. That's obviously going to be off-putting, and particularly when it's not true. Mm. You know, obviously, if you're going to go rock climbing, then, yes, there are probably some practical things that you need. Or maybe they're not. Maybe that's a bad example. I guess if you're going to go scuba diving, you probably do want to wear a wetsuit if you're going to go to a cold place and go scuba diving. It's probably a good idea to have a wetsuit. But I don't think that Lycra is the sort of cycling equivalent of a wetsuit. For, for scuba diving you don't have to wear it you can wear it if you like it but we, we we people who who are comfortable wearing it should not underestimate the degree to which it alienates cycling as an activity from the sort of mental sense of possibility in in your average person in the population mm. so in the on the press release that i've got here which is about lost lanes north um it, it's talking about how how successful you've been. So well done, you've actually made some. Thank you. Because it's not easy to 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 make a, a book sell. I mean, bestsellers can be you know five thousand copies um, uh, sometimes. So to to make a bicycle book sell well is is good going. So have you done that? Have you have you have you plugged into something? I think the first. I mean, the first the first one. The Lost Lanes Southern England sold really well. Um, I think somewhere around 30,000 copies. I don't know what they say in the press release, something like that. Um, and the subsequent ones, Wales and West, um, have sold a frac- fractions of that. So, um, you know, more like 10,000 or 6,000, that, kind of, that kind of range. So it's a big difference. Um, I think the first one did well partly because there are a lot of people cycling in London. Even back in 2013, um, it went in the non-bike boom or whatever it was, there simply are a lot of people who cycle to work. And I think I was tapping into the idea that, hey, you've got this bike that you cycle to work in every day or some days. Um, how about using it to go and have a nice day out in the countryside? Um, and also the fact that every ride was pretty much accessible from central London on a, on a train journey. Whereas, you know, if you live up where you do in, in, in Newcastle and you want to do a ride in Lancashire, you know, that, that's a long way away. I mean, so it's not, it's, 
inevitably with the rail network and, and transport links being the way they are a, a book based around the kind of hub of london as a as a public transport hub with this incredible network of of or not a network just spokes that go out into the the, the green belt of london um is appealing because it means that if you live in london you can basically do all the rides and there are eight million people who live in london quite a lot of them ride bikes um and it also got picked up i think by a few gift shops they have these gift shops at railway stations oliver bonas um and, and i think the gifting market for cycling stuff you can it is good because it's it's a bit like gardening or golf or recipe books i don't know what else Reci- um, it's kind of a recipe, recipe book well maybe maybe yeah, yeah it, but it's that thing of like oh what do i get that person oh they're really into in you know insert the word it could be cycling could be gardening could be golf and so you, you could pick up some sort of silly knickknack like a, a tea towel with a bicycle logo on it or a notebook with a bicycle logo on it and or a mug and you know we've all received these gifts i'm sure you have um at, at christmases and birthdays and things like that and you're like your heart kind of sinks it's like oh yeah another you know, just because it's got a bicycle logo doesn't doesn't mean i'm going to just love this this notepad or these paper clips or whatever they are um but i think but i think you know a nice chunky book with attractive cover um and i mean i should pay tribute to the guy who did the illustration andrew pavitt who's done who's really evoked sort of the the classic iconography of cycle touring in the golden age of the 30s mm. 40s and 50s and travel you know travel brochures of that era but i think has taken it forward into his own style and i think people just immediately pick up the book because it's got a kind of zingy cover and then open it up and go oh there's lots of nice pictures i would like to be there and and, and this will be great for my friend who's really into cycling or my relative or my son or my daughter so the gifting market as publishers call it um has been good to us um with 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 lost lanes um, but i have to say it, the first one is the one that has kept me doing them in terms of finance mm. um so thank you to everyone who's bought a lost lanes southern england and to everyone who hasn't bought a west or a wales mm. or a north come on come on <laughs> so let's talk about if that's not too much of a hard let's, sell let's, well, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna i'm definitely we're gonna segue we're gonna gonna slip it in and out of different uh, uh, uh themes i would because yeah. you've mentioned but, income i would like now to go into to your income and talk about you as what you do as a day job. So when I'm doing my research here, you, you know, find out what Jack Thurston does. And it's like, hang on, co-founder of Farm Subsidy. I didn't know anything about this. Uh, special advisor to, to the Newcastle MP, Nick Brown, uh, who I've had a few run-ins with before. And, oh, I didn't know any of this. Transatlantic Fellow of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Wow. I didn't know any of this. So, Jack... Tell us about Jack. Well, uh, <laughs> um, the mask is lifted. Um, no, I mean, I, <laughs> I think, I think the 2013 was a sort of pivotal year because that was the kind of year when I, 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 I stopped doing a lot of that work. Um, actually, quite happily, um, I felt a little bit burnt out by what I had been doing for the previous 10 years. And what I had been doing for the previous 10 or 15 years is working in, in politics, public policy, um, research, um, that kind of area. Um, I, I started working as a researcher for, uh, for Nick Brown just after, immediately after leaving university um, as like, I mean, researcher is glorified way of putting it. I was 
I was, you know, I did photocopying, I made cups of tea, I opened the post, you know, bag carrier, that kind of thing. Um, and um, in a small office of an MP. And, and the nice thing about working in the small office of an MP is that they do get to see you. And, and, and if you can do something, you know, more than just opening the post and making the tea, then, then, you know, that will get noticed. And you can then, you know, accrue more work because they've ultimately, none of them have got enough, especially in, in opposition when it's just them and their, their, their small two or three members of staff, you know, there's more work um, to be done than they have got staff to do it. So there's, there's always opportunities if you want to, if you want to kind of get, you know, get on as it were, but it's just getting that foot in the door really. Um, and weirdly, actually, when I asked him afterwards, why did you give me that job? Like, why did you, you get, you know, you get MPs get, letters every week or more than that you know saying from young pushy politics graduates saying can i have a job in your office sort of thing um and it was weirdly he looked he looked he looked through it and um there were two things that struck out on my cv it was nothing to do with my you know academic qualifications or anything like that one of them was that i'd done some work at university on hiv and aids like awareness um which i think he thought was a was was good um and and also i'd cycled across romania um with in in with with a friend exactly my friend daniel who published my books we'd we'd saved up money from working and got a little travel bursary from our universities and and flew across to romania and and spent six weeks cycling around i think he thought that was a bit different from the what he normally got so to all if there's any i don't know if there's any young people listen to this podcast there's no young people listen to my podcast carlton um but you know the things that you do (laughs) the things that you do outside you know you're cycling you know you know it, it shows you've got an independent spirit and and a sense of can do so anyway i started working for nick and um just carried on with him for for a while um and then ended up as a special advisor in the ministry of agriculture when he was the agriculture minister so i was doing right helping writing speeches and research and bag carrying and all the rest of it um and during that time i kind of got to see how screwed up um agriculture policy was um pretty much everywhere around the world but particularly bad it felt like in in europe um paying money loads of money to the wrong kind of people for doing the wrong kind of things with their land um and i thought having stopped doing that work having left nick and kind of was on my own um thinking look if people knew where this money went if people just knew how much money was going to the queen the duke of westminster eton college all these big companies they would surely say there's got to be a better way. So I then, so I started working on a kind of freedom of information campaign um, in Britain, working a bit with the Guardian newspaper and some journalists there who specialise in that. Um, to because and because I knew because I'd worked on the inside and I knew where all the information was in the government department, we could kind of target those requests quite specifically and make it hard for them to refuse. Um, and 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 eventually we won um or i won and with the information commissioner who ruled in my favor and we got all this data on who gets what at the level of the individual farmer so you know you could say you could say you can look up the queen you could look up all these rich people and see how much tax money they were getting and then and then i took spent the next few years taking that model around europe and and getting other 
activists and journalists doing the same thing in different European countries. And then we ran a website, a massive data site, like big, da- big data before big data was a thing where you could actually search all this stuff. Um, and, and you could search by your postcode and find out who the big recipients of farm subsidies were in your area. And I hoped that it would, you know, drive a sort of reform um, of, of, the, of the whole system and we'd end up with a much better system. But, you know, that, that didn't really work out um, for lots of different reasons. And I felt, so I felt a bit, you know, you work at something for 10 years and, and you kind of feel like you're in a worse position than you were when you started and you just kind of if it's difficult not to feel a little bit disillusioned like you could just carry on for another 10 years and another 10 years and then you'd be like 70 and you'd be the guy who campaigned for reform of the common agricultural policy and didn't achieve it um and that would be that with your life and i just thought that's not really what i want um i've tried hard with this and it's time to pass the baton on to other people <laughs> so that sounds a bit that's a bit underwhelming description of my career journey isn't it but then i remember also someone said to me once when i was you know a student or something that you should have like a different career every 10 years and you should just kind of change so i guess that's what i've what i've been doing so what are you now are you an author so what when somebody I'm... says what do you do for a living and you don't know them from adam what do you say i hate that question i really hate that question um because it pre it supposes that sort of what you do is who you are um and it also presupposes supposes that the work that you do for money is the work that defines who you are um and i don't feel like that um i i mean partly because i don't earn very much money <laughs> um so i mean i'm i'm i work part-time um because i've got two young kids who are four and six and uh, my wife is much more successful in what she does than i am in what i do so you know she has a kind of sort of a preeminent role in in, in a way um, in terms of time allocation and neither of us make a huge amount of money of what we do. But we live in a rural area. You know, we have quite low outgoings. Um, I grow a lot of vegetables. So we sort of get by. Um, and, um, yeah, I'd say I write, I write cycling books. I, I also write for, for magazines and newspapers and, and that kind of thing about cycling. Um, and try and keep a podcast on its feet. Uh, but that doesn't bring in any money. That actually costs money um, to do. So I don't know. Yeah, stay home dad slash guidebook author slash journalist is that or travel writer i don't know is that right does that sound right well i'm asking you if that's if that's what you say when when, when people don't know who you are but then again i didn't know anything about your background so that that's good for me to uh, why why didn't i know these things about uh, about you i just know you as jack bike show and you ask the questions now, because I'm asking you the questions, we can find out a bit more about, I was Jack who was doing farm subsidy stuff. So that's kind of lefty when you're working with Nick Brown and farm subsidy. It's kind of lefty-ish. So I know you've done a show on this, but just your opinions. Is cycling left-wing? Is it right-wing? Because I know you had differing opinions from different political spectrums there because you had Guido Fawkes on who was saying, no, no, actually it's libertarian. Um, you know, freedom to go anywhere and stuff. So w- where do you see cycling in the political sphere? I tend to think it's naturally on the left uh, because it's democratic, because it's accessible, because it's sort of non, non-violent, non-dominating of others. Um, and it's quite a levelling 
type of thing. Um, I, I can see the arguments for freedom and and sort of liberty, um, but I also think that those arguments lead you quite quickly towards auto domination and a kind of uh, world in which you just have cars um, or you're poor and you ride the bus or walk. Um, and and I don't and I think that's much more of a of a, of a right wing kind of view. But the, you know the left right split. I mean, where is the left right split in in the in society today? It does feel like it's fracturing in all kinds of so it's now a, different directions. It's now a, a Brexit it? split rather than a. Well, I mean, it's not just not just even talking about Brexit in Britain. I mean, you know, I, I yeah, um, I think I think traditionally it has been of the left. And if you look at someone like Kuklos um, uh, Fitzwater Ray, who's a, a, a hero of mine from the, the, the golden age of cycling, um, he was a pacifist, um, a socialist the Clarion Cycling Club, you know, he was involved with them. I think that it has got, I don't think the Primrose League, were the Primrose League on bikes? Because um, they're the sort of right-wing counterpoint to the Clarion, Clarion Cycling Club, aren't they? Um, no, I, th- I think, I think, I think you can put different interpretations on it. Um, and I think, I think self-reliance, independence, liberty, those are all things which appeal to a certain strand of of thinking on the right. Um, but I think overall the bicycle, you know, I mean, I'd like to think that the bicycle ha- has appeal for everybody. Um, but I think, I think there's, there's, I was listening to a podcast the other day about um, li- liberty and the idea of positive liberty and negative liberty. And, 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 you know, your liberty to do something versus whether someone is stopping you from doing something. And I do feel, I mean, I, you and I agree on this, I think, Carlton, you know, the, the, the cars, the cars is just the root of the problem. I mean, bicycles are sort of, it's, they're almost like a side issue. And I, I, it's crazy for me to say that as someone who's basically works in cycling, loves cycling, but they are a side issue in the whole thing about car dominated societies. Is, is that going too far? No, but they are coming to a bit more prominence now. You know, with with. Oh, I'm not saying I'm not saying they're not prominent. What I meant, what I meant to say is that that you know, you tackle the reason why I'm so passionate and about cycling is is because it's a way of travelling that that doesn't impose so much horror on other people. But you're part part of that, Jack. I mean, you are also the, talking the, the, about of pleasure. From Jack, it. you're talking about your kind of cycling, but you can just as easily get a. Uh, a dentist earning £250,000 a year who's got a fleet of Porsches who goes out on his road bike can also be be cycling and, and absolutely would not be of the left. You can get people like uh, Sir Alan Sugar who are out there and, and saying some pretty awful things at the moment on social media. They're out there cycling. And then you get people who are traveling to trail centers you know, in their big SUVs, getting their mountain bikes off the side, probably two, £3,000 mountain bikes, probably more and then going away again so they're not of that ilk so are you not just self-describing yourself here when you when you're when you're talking about cycling this is this is where you see it but it's actually there's many many uh, prisms you can you can see cycling through many kinds of cyclists out there but which is probably one of its actual strengths that's true no no i do agree with you and i'm going to row back from my position um i think you know yeah anyone can enjoy the thrill of turning a pedal the, and the and the and the 
pleasure of the wind in your hair and the the exhilaration you get from being on a bicycle that is a, a something that appeals beyond anything to do with politics but i do think that once you start thinking about why cycling is so marginal in certain societies and so prominent in other societies there is a political dimension to that um which is based around um well it's obviously you know it comes down to infrastructure doesn't it as we both agree um and culture perhaps um and those are all expressions or causation factors in politics and i think the sort of social democratic um politics of of denmark of the netherlands of you know um germany um those are the, the the places where there is good cycling infrastructure where cycling is is much more widespread than it is in in our sort of anglo-saxon countries you know there there, there is there is a link there um to do with politics um i don't know um, i mean you're the expert on this i don't you feel like you're i feel like i'm being quizzed <laughs> by someone who knows all the answers and and and, and like you're gonna I, mean, I feel like it's a bit like a t- tutorial well well Carlton. when you, you mentioned and you're my you're my pro, you're my professor you, you've <laughs> mentioned the netherlands there um uh, I, i'm not confucius here at all i'm not gonna be <laughs> absolutely I, I can learn from anybody um so the netherlands um if you asked the same question in the netherlands it would be like what what do you mean it's a left wing or it's a right no it's just cycling yeah. is everything you can have rabid right wingers cycling just as much as left wings so that does seem to be a and the reason i asked the question is probably very much a, 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 a british thing to do or an anglo-saxon thing to do in, in in your terms in that in other countries it's not politically charged yet we me you perhaps others um when we self-describe this we we do make it politically charged but you've then got things like David Cameron, cycling prime minister. I mean, they couldn't do it when they were prime ministers, but still, uh, the, the current prime minister is exactly is famous for, for being on a bike. Name, you know, how many uh, Labour prime ministers have been famous for their, their bicycling credentials? Well, I can't think of any. So is it really uh, that Jerry left-wing? Corbyn, but didn't, <laughs> didn't become prime minister. Yeah, not prime minister, no. I mean, it, was, it, was a great, it was a great election, wasn't it? With, we had two, two people who, who ride bikes um, against each other. Corbyn and um, and and um, Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think I think there are I think there are different levels at which you can talk about that issue. And clearly, you don't have to be of the left or of the right to enjoy cycling. Um, but I do think that cycling does, especially cycling in a country like ours, where you are really you know the scum of the earth basically on the roads that's how you're treated by most people a lot a lot of people um and that does that is a kind of that does that is there is a kind of humbling thing about that and it's not not a pleasant thing but it does it does show you how vulnerable you are um and that i think is is the consciousness from which sort of deeper care for others and empathy for others who are less in vulnerable or in vulnerable positions can spring from so i do think that the bicycle can make you a better person i I just i don't see elon musk on a bicycle um i don't see donald trump on a bicycle i don't see all these sort of selfish grasping hucksters that seem to define 21st century alan Alan sugar as people on bicycles i mean he's the apprentice of the uk 
Yeah, Alan Sugar's a funny one, isn't he? Because he is actually, he was a Labour Party supporter, wasn't he, for many yeah, years? Yeah, he's flipped. Until Corbyn came along. He 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 was a new Labour, Tony Blair. Um, so he does come from that tra- a left a left working class tradition. Um, and I don't know what he is, what he, where he is now. Um, but then, you know, I think you need to... Yeah, I mean, there's anecdotes and individual data points and they can be confounding effects. And clearly, racing, cycling, mountain biking, you know, um, you know, in a, in a controlled environment um, is, you know, is, is one thing. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I do feel that in my experience of meeting um, people who are eminent in the cycling world, as I've done over the podcast, um, I do feel that they do tend to be on more on on the left. That's just as kind of my experience. Um, Chris Boardman, Graham O'Brien, those sorts of people. I mean, that's just sort of where they are, where they're at. I don't know. So in the all the president's men, which is the the Woodsford uh, and Bernstein book about the the Watergate scandal, you've got Carl Bernstein, who was a self described nineteen seventies bike boom bike freak was very upset when he discovered that there was a bike freak actually in the White House working for Creep, the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, uh, Magruder. So Magruder would cycle to the White House. He was the almost certainly within the, 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 the high command of, uh, of the Watergate scandal, basically. Uh, I think he certainly went to prison for it. Um, and so he... It, that shocked Carl, Carl Bernstein. He was incredibly shocked when he was researching all of this Watergate stuff that he assumed that cycling was left wing. And here there was a rabid right winger was cycling. Now, we sti- I, that, that probably still shocks, actually. That anecdote still shocks because, yes, I think most people, I'm touching wood here, most people would assume cycling is leftish, greenish, eco-ish. And when you get right wingers on, it's like, oh, that's that that stands out. But what, what what politically, what stops you getting on a bike? Nothing stops you getting on a bike politically. No, I think there are. I mean, what, didn't Margaret Thatcher say something about um, you have to worry about a, a man in his twenties who rides the bus or something like that? Some uh, sort of apocryphal, quote. I'm afraid. But yes, you, you shouldn't be you Is shouldn't be riding on a bus. Shouldn't okay. be on public transport. It's, it's apocryphal, but it, it kind of fed into her mentality for sure. Yeah, I think there is a there is a sense in which a car is a status symbol and is indicative of success in a kind of capitalist economy and society. And having a nice car and driving everywhere is is kind of how you show that you've made it according to those criteria. But Jack, you can have both. You can have both. You can have a nice car and a nice bike, Jack. Yeah, but you wouldn't. You'd you'll just you'll you'll use the yeah so maybe i'm you can go into a, yeah go for a bike race or a bike ride i don't know um you can have both that's for sure you can have both we've talked in, uh, uh, over many many years about the history of cycle touring so you're fascinated we've talked about lawrence of arabia um and his you know where he he came a cropper, of course, uh, on his motorbike without uh, trying to kill two cyclists. But then he did do lots of cycle tours before that. So you're very interested in the history of cycle touring. You're not just writing about this and then doing a brief mention in your books. You are you are really interested in the 
in the the whole era of of classic cycle touring i think i'm just interested in traveling by bicycle and when you're interested in something you want to kind of find out how long it's been going on for and clearly it's only been going on for as long as there've been bicycles so that's not a, and that is mostly recorded history you know that well it's all recorded history obviously we're going back to the 1860s i suppose mm. um so it's 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 you know and it's very well documented um because cyclists love to write about their endeavors and take pictures of them or draw line drawings about them and i just i don't know i find it um very alluring to to feel a connection with somebody who lived a hundred years ago who's doing something similar to what i'm doing now um and feeling the same kind of things um and experiencing them in a similar sort of way i just it's it's, it's you get a little historical shiver down your spine don't you it's or it's, i mean it's a bit like stepping into a into a medieval castle um and thinking you know closing your eyes and thinking like what would it have been like um but you don't really know do you you really don't know what in a ruined castle what would it have been like what would have life been like in a castle it's beyond almost what we can imagine 500 600 700 years back but i could definitely imagine 100 years back and and the things were sufficiently different back then to be interesting to me and in what in terms of what's changed um but it's sufficiently close in terms of experience that i can kind of touch it and really really have a feel for it feel for the texture of it um so it's it's the appeal of history isn't it um and it and and i I find history appealing in lots of different ways industrial history um yeah i think but i think history history is most powerful when it i i don't know i'm going to qualify myself here because if you go to somewhere like stonehenge and you kind of touch those stones and we're now we're talking about prehistory and you have no idea who the people were who'd made that place and why they did it and almost even how they did it. Um, And it can be totally awe-inspiring and just knock you for six. And so clearly you don't need to be proximate to the people you're having this sort of historical connection with. But there is a certain kind of uh, a feeling of proximity that that does, I don't know, give it a bit more texture and a bit more liveliness. It's a different kind of thing, isn't it? It's a different kind of thing, but I, I do love chancing upon old photographs of places that I know that a hundred years ago, and and seeing them. So, I don't know. do you do you feel the same? You're into history. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think I'm alone. No, no, in no, this. no, no, not at all. So, 1890s, which is that that first bike boom, uh, when people are getting out there on their 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 bikes. And you've got people, and I know we've have, I'm pretty sure we have a conversation on Twitter about this at the time, but when I've posted images of 1890 cycle tourists, for instance, going to Stonehenge, which you've just mentioned, you know, they were on uh, what's now the, the, is it the one, 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 three, one, oh, three or one, oh, three. What's the, what's the road? It's anyway, it's the, 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 the three, oh, three. Thank you. The, the major road that's going through the West Country, you're a West, you know, you, you, you know this better than me because of your, your, your books. Yeah. But the 303, that's like, so those cyclists of the 1890s were on the main roads of the day because there was no cars yeah. at the time. So yeah. they were riding, they weren't riding on lost lanes back then. They were riding, in effect, on the turnpikes, uh, the major roads o- of the day. So when, you're, when you evoke um, that historical resonance, well, those guys weren't riding on 
your lost lanes, they were riding on the motorways of the day. There's just there's no well, cars. They, they were. Yeah, they were. Um, but actually, pretty quickly, um, towards in the 1910s or no, no, 1900s and 1910s, you start to come across. Sorry, you start to come upon people saying, oh, that road's too busy now, or we, we don't like that road anymore. If you go through the, and the 1920s and 30s, and, and, and there is a sort of, that's the era in which the car starts to dominate and cyclists head off to find other roads. Um, and, and I think that's a process that has continued to this day. And I think that's what gravel biking is all about. And, and I love gravel, gravel bikes. They are perfect machines for cycling on lost lanes and more. And I think that, that I, I don't know whether I would say the 1890s is my golden age of, of cycle touring. I think it's for a start, if you look at the kind of people who were doing it, it, it was a one particular, it was a fa- fairly well to do, um, not exclusively, but fairly well to do. I think the golden era of, of, of cycling, that I, in terms of my view of it, is probably the 30s, when you start getting the outdoors movement, all the youth hostels cropping up and people having a bit of time and a bit the opportunity to go out there, bicycles a bit more accessible, lightweight machines are sort of available. Um, and then the 40s and 50s um, with the rough stuff and sort of the york rally and all those kinds of things that are the beacons of um of cycling um in in our country um and then in the 60s i think it yeah it starts to become a bit more marginal again although i have to i should say because i i looking at i, I look at the bike images of the bike centennial in america which is in 76 wasn't it and there are some beautiful photographs of that and i have to say i look at those photographs with exactly the same frisson of history as I look at the photo- as photographs from the 1930s, um, I, I just feel like that was a real amazing time and a place to be to be around, to be cycling across America. And I would, I'd love to, um, I'd love to learn more about it. Um, actually, um, so I, th- I think you can look at all these different eras. Um, you can look at images from the early London to Brighton's in the ni- early 1980s and see, you know, handmade friends of the earth stickers or posters or not posters banners and badges and things like that um it's just it's sort of making a connection with like-minded people across the barrier of time and and i think that's interesting i don't really mind whether i I, i'm envious of the fact that the cyclists of the 1890s were able to just barrel down the best flattest roads to get places and cover big distances I'm, i'm incredibly envious of them but i don't feel that that I have to, I'm in any way interested in reproducing their journeys in terms of the actual roads they went on. I'm, I think I'm more interested in in drawing on a wellspring of bicycle travel through a century or more, and and trying to interpreting it for our times um, and what what's available now. Jack, um, we're gonna we're gonna close for a break now. We'll come back in a minute, and I, I'm going to talk to you about. I, I want to hear about other tours that you've done i know you've just said you did romania but actual tours rather than just going out for day rides so that's what we're going to talk about when we come back so we'll go for a break so david take it away hey carlton thanks so much and it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser this is a long time loyal advertiser you all know who i'm talking about it's jensen usa at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman i've been telling you for years now 
years that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, thanks, David. And we are here uh, with Jack Thurston, uh, who, well, as he said before, he, he, he's, he's, he's not an author. He, he's, he's lots of different things. He would, he would have had a very long business card. Um, but I, I asked before the ad break, I, I wanted to find out what touring. So, so Jack has, is, he was talking about his, the, the golden eras, and there's been many golden eras, including that, the, those wonderful rides across the US in the 1976. And do go and search the photographs of, of those. There's some f- fantastic National Geographic, uh, if you go into their archive of, of some of those photographs. Um, but Jack, what, what kind of touring have you done apart from where you were talking talk about Romania? So what, what have you done elsewhere in the world? So I haven't done a huge amount of worldwide touring. Um, I feel a bit, um, of an underachiever. You're a fraud. In, You're in a fraud. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have cycled. I mean, I've done, I did a big ride around France in 2008 for about six weeks. So I rode the crest of the Pyrenees from the Atlantic coast to the Mediterranean, um, like with full panniers and all that stuff. This was before Kindles had come along and my entire front left pannier was full of paperbacks and maps. <laughs> 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 uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I was a, 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 but I was an early adopter of the tarp on that trip. I did have a tarp. Um, I'd seen them when I was walking the John Muir trail in California. I'd seen a guy, sleeping under a tarp and it looked a lot better than my little mini tent so um, I, I i did that that was a tarp trip um i have done some um little you know three or four day tours around northern france um kind of accessible from britain i've done a lot of cycling in in england and wales um i would say that was the most of it i mean i've done some i don't not sure they're big tours sorts of cycling holidays in the alps um and the pyrenees um, kind of just more like out doing day rides but most of my cycle touring has been in in england and wales so cycling down i used to cycle every summer down to cornwall from london uh, my friends um had uh used to rent the same cottage on the beach at constantine bay in near padstow and so they would they would go on the train and i would set off a couple of days earlier and give them a bag with my clothes and things like that and wetsuit and stuff to to carry down with with them and then so i'd cycle down and then then take the train with them back at the end of the holiday and cycling around wales um yeah just different parts of parts of england really um i did a i did a very disastrous um 
<laughs> looking back on it, it feels like a disastrous cycling tour in New England because some friends of mine were getting married in Vermont and I wanted to go to their wedding, but I thought it was pretty irresponsible to like fly across the Atlantic to just go to a wedding. So I thought, okay, I'll make this, I'll build my summer holiday around this wedding. And so I cycled from Montreal to New York with the wedding at the halfway point. And then um, towards the end in New York, I had a bad crash and ended up in hospital having my teeth fixed. A crash um, that you caught that, to the that holiday. No, nobody else was involved or what, what was? No. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was, it was on one of those, you get some bridges in America that are made out of like about made out of metal like a kind of grid structure of metal um i don't know what the right word for that is um but they quite get they get very slick in the wet and i came down a descent with too much speed and applied the brakes and lost the back wheel and hit the deck and hit my face into the metal grill of this bridge um yeah <laughs> that wasn't very nice um but um and and yeah i didn't i didn't I, the wild camping in vermont i mean and 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 upstate new york i mean the mosquitoes were just appalling um and also i felt like wild camping was really was really not on like there were signs everywhere lots of barbed wire kind of saying you know you can't come in here uh, stay away intruders stay away and so it was quite hard to find really nice places to wild camp um i just i, I didn't feel comfortable with the kind of culture of of whether it was acceptable just to pitch your tent anywhere um and I, I still don't really know the answer to that um and also it was quite difficult getting food like you'd end up sort of shopping in like petrol stations and things and then things would come in very large packets so you'd have to buy like two pounds of bacon or something and you couldn't eat it all and it would go off and you couldn't just you know you could just get a small amount to keep you going from day to day you had to sort of buy these bulk loads of stuff and so you got a bit more weighed down by it all so i don't know i kind of failed at cycle touring in america <laughs> i have to say uh, maybe one day i would like to come back um but i mean i i'd love to do another big trip i'd love to cycle across europe i'd love to cycle to istanbul or something like that um i did a, t a tour for three days for the guardian um travel section um last year as the guest of the vendee office de tourisme um the, the tourist board over there who um showed me around the the atlantic cycleway uh, south of the mouth of the river loire um from basically from the mouth of the river loire to la rochelle and i did that on a brompton um which was fun um so i'd like to do yeah i'd like to do some more touring in france with my kids i'd love to go to the netherlands with my kids because i think that would be the place to take them for cycle touring because that's 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 the sort of limiting factor these days is when i'm not doing a book i'm basically with the children um and they can't really do cycle touring in britain because the, it's the roads that are really not safe for it uh, um with the exception of a few rides that i've done like a bit on the northumberland coast with the kids really nice um the devon coast to coast is a good child-friendly one we were supposed to be going up to the peak district in derbyshire at the end of may to do some cycling with the kids on the uh, old railway lines um, but I don't know if we're, we're going to be able to do that with Corona. So, um, yeah. So I don't know. I, 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 I really look at these people who do like your son, who does this, does this amazing riding back from China. And I feel like now is the, not the time I, I, sh I should have done that. 
I should have done that already. I should have done that in my 20s or 30s. I don't know why I didn't, um, but I just didn't. I was too busy in politics, I suppose. Um, and I, I guess it's something that I'll probably have to wait um, until I'm a bit less encumbered with family life. Um, yeah. I know I know what you mean um, about that. I mean, I, I, I was certainly, I've, I've been looking at Josh's trip and that brought back all the memories of when I did those kind of trips. And I'm kind of thinking... When can I do them again? Not not Corona stopping me, but because it is going to be a couple of years before I can do this. But just, yeah, I'd like to do some mammoth trips again of just heading out, pointing the bike in a, a direction. You don't know where you're going to be. You don't know where you're going to be that night. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward to doing those kind of trips again. Actually, not, not just no planning. No, no, just heading out. And because that's what I did. I just went out and just just cycled off and didn't know where I was going to go. And so was that for, for for months on end, or how long were you going? Oh, for? I went for two years. So I, I, I right, oh, I started in the uh, before university. I was going to do, uh, I was going to do politics. In fact, uh, Jack, uh, and then I did a, t- a year of cycling around the Middle East, and thought I'm not going to do politics, and so I spent another year of of cycle touring again around a bit the middle east bit of america i did an awful lot of 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 touring for two years basically uh just uh just pointing the bike and just just going which was fantastic and i've I've always harked after that and, and doing that again of not having any any worries but like you i've got kids uh but unlike you my kids are quite a bit older so I am, I'm, I'm probably not too many years away of being able to do that kind of cycle touring again, if I can interest my wife <laughs> into, into. Yeah, well, it. that's the thing. Would you, would you just leave her on, on her own or would you go with her or she would go with you? Well, she's, before we were married, I, I took her to Iceland and we did an incredible trip into the interior of Iceland in which it was perpetual daylight. You had to get from campsite to campsite. You couldn't just do the wild camping. uh, You were saying there before you had to get to an official campsite. So you were having to cycle for 19, 21 hours a day to cycle through Europe's only desert, uh, which was, you know, all the sandy roads in Iceland. And that could have actually finished our relationship there and then. (laughs) But I discovered that she was, incredibly tough and she was able to do these amazing bike rides that i was making her do so she's a keeper uh so i would say i would uh i would do those bike rides with with her at at some point but she's a doctor so it's kind of difficult for her to to take long career breaks yeah i mean i think there's an interesting thing about how you can and maybe it's a little bit like alistair humphreys and his idea of micro adventures um can you get a certain amount of what you get out of a big trip in a shorter trip and how do you go about doing that um and and i think for me i've been thinking i've flown a lot on on airplanes for work um uh and i feel like i don't really want to be flying um for my leisure um you know, I just don't, I, it's a personal decision and I'm not preaching to anybody else. I just don't feel like that's what I want to be, where I want to be at. So I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, okay, so it's going to, if I'm going to cycle around the world, I'm really going to have to cycle around the world. I'm going to have to wonder, wonder, wonder about the Atlantic and the Pacific, but I'm, I'm pretty much sort of committed to, to cycling from where I can get to by train. Um, 
or boat. But that gives me a huge amount of scope. Um, I mean, Europe is Europe is is continental Europe, Ireland. I'd love to go there. Scotland. Um, there's a lot of places I'd like to go, and I, and I do feel like I get a lot of the um, benefit from from even like a week or two week trip. Um, I think so. I'm, I'm that's what I'm more thinking of. I'd love to cycle across France, you know, just from Calais or or Saint Malo to to the Mediterranean coast. You know, that would just be a nice thing, a lo- nice thing to do. So let's get into the future. Um, then. I, I don't. I, let's get into the future. Are you going to be doing? Sorry for interrupting there, Jack. But are you going to be doing Lost Lanes? France are we doing Lost Lanes Ireland Lost Lanes Scotland what's I'm not don't give too much away but what is your future in in guidebook writing well no I'm I'm happy to happy to say I mean I should be out now this is the prime time of year May and June the countryside's looking at its best nice long days um I should be out doing Lost Lanes Central England which is the next book um but i am which you know takes in the cotswolds takes in the peak district by my definition i I drew a fairly high line for what is the north um i know it's a topic of endless debate where does the north start but i wanted to have there's so much great cycling in northern england that the further south you draw the line that you know the the less there is to go around or the less rides there are to go around or what i'm I'm not expressing that myself clearly um you know the rides are going to be even more sparse than they already are. And, they're, you know, the great regret I get with any of these books is that I didn't do a ride there. I didn't do a ride there. I didn't do a ride from Durham up into um, the North Pennines. That that should have been in there. But then I would have had to lose one of the rides, you know. So I, I, I wanted to draw the line up there so I'd have a, I could have a really good chunk for mid the Midlands, Central England, whatever you want to call it, that would take in the Cotswolds, that would take in the Peak District, um, they're taking the Malvern Hills, um, sort of the border right up to Wales. Um, I'm not quite sure where the eastern line will be drawn and whether I'll do a Lost Lanes east um, or not, whether there's sort of mileage in that. So you've still got a fair bit, um, we'll see how it goes. You've still got a fair bit in, in just England, in effect, to go before you even need to get to, to France. Yeah. And then I think it would be Scotland mm. would be would be next. And I don't know how you divide up Scotland because I, I think it would be ridiculous to I mean, I'm creating a hostage to fortune here, aren't I? I think it would be very difficult to do like one book on the whole of Scotland, unless it was maybe a bigger book with with like fifty rides rather than just the just of, the, the, just the borders. You could do some amazing, amazing book just well, on the borders. Never mind Scotland as a whole. I just... know. The the problem is the more specific a book gets in terms of geography, the the the, the less sales there are really, and you know I. Uh, sales is what makes it a question of whether it's viable or not and i feel like a lost lanes france um would be i mean you know you couldn't do the whole country i mean you'd need multiple books to do france um and then and then actually my publishers do have a really nice book about cycling in france called uh france en velo which is basically about one route from from saint malo to nice i think um and they are they they're actually the people, couple who wrote that run a tour company called Saddle Skidaddle, I think. Um and they, they I think they're up, up nearby nearby you actually. And they, mile, they run that as a, a tour. mile and a half from where I am. And there I saw you, them the other day. In lockdown, I even saw them in lockdown. Yes. So yeah, they so they they, they have a well established touring route that they guide and they thought they would make a book about it. I think the sales of that have been okay. Um I don't think they've been quite 
up to Lost Lanes levels. Um, so it's really trying to come up with a book that would, um, you know, meet the test of sales and is do- and is doable. Really, um, I think. I mean, I'm very interested in in the whole off-roading sort of resurgence in in sort of light mountain biking. I can call it that, um, which is what cra- gravel biking is. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm slightly irritated that this whole new idea of gravel biking has come along because it's like basically just riding on on sort of rough tracks, and we've been doing that forever, um, or forever there've been bicycles. But I do love gravel bikes, and I think that gravel bikes are the bikes that most people, you know, going for a day out should be riding as opposed to a as a, a road bike because it just gives you so much more safety on the road and and it gives you so much p- more potential to ride different kinds of um surfaces. yeah flexibility um I, I i'm yeah i mean i'm riding i'm riding a um a bike with 38 mil one bike it's got 38 mil tires and one bike's got 47 600 650b 47 and I, and i'm ro- mostly riding it on the road um and it feels so safe. You know, it just feels like you're never, you're never going to lose grip. You're never going to fall off. Um, and I know I'm probably not going to fall off anyway because I'm quite an experienced cyclist. But I think lots of people do have little prangs and, and things, don't they, and, and lose, lose grip on the road. So the idea that recreational cyclists should be riding the same kind of bikes that Tour de France people are riding is just madness. It's just, the, you know, it's just madness. And so gravel bikes... Uh, give an alternative to the touring bike um, for people who, who don't want to be carrying lots of stuff, but still want to do a lot of varied cycling. Have you got you've got a gravel bike, haven't you, Carlton? I have a specialised diverge that uh, specialised very kindly lent it to me uh, for a, a variety of projects before the lockdown, and then because the lockdown hit, yeah. they said, "Oh, Carlton, we can't actually collect it, keep it uh, for the duration of the lockdown." So it's like fantastic. I've got this bike for months and months. Nice. Uh, so yes, I've I've got a, a gravel bike that uh, I'm use. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that, Jack. In that I am using that far more than I'd use a road bike. Certainly in lockdown, because you can get, um, oh, oh, you know, you can do lots more different flexibility. So I, I do a lot of um, railway paths, and then I come off the railway path, and then if, if I if there's too many people on there, because there are a lot of people walking on those railway paths at the moment. Then I go, well, I may as well go on the road. You know, I'll just do this stretch, you know, on what was formerly an incredibly busy dual carriageway. Well, I can now ride on that because there's no cars. And then it just gives you that flexibility of doing the, the, the dirt track and the dual carriageway with the same bike. And that's, yeah, that, that Yeah, I mean, obviously you could, you, could, you could ride your mountain bike on a dual carriageway, but it just wouldn't have the same sense of elan and spirit, would it? um you know we're going along with knobblies i mean we do this is another thing we were talking about at the beginning weren't we about lycra and stuff and then once once we start geeking out about different kinds of bikes and what bike you need to do this and what bike you need to do that you're immediately putting off your general public who basically just go into a bike shop and like pick a bike up and go i want the lightest one and like that and that's just you kind of that that whole mentality is just is is so pernicious, isn't it? You see, so, I meet so many people, and in fact, readers of readers of my books who have taken up cycling and have bought road bikes because they're light, and maybe because the bike shop had a lot of road bikes in, um, and and then they're they're, they're on a there is a little section like a two mile section of bridleway on my on on the route that I've given them in the book, 
and they're like oh it was muddy and oh our tires got stuck and we got mud in the brakes and all that and and i i try to be sympathetic and and i i don't say i wish you hadn't bought that bike but i do wish they hadn't bought that bike i wish they bought a, a gravel bike or a you know touring bike old-fashioned touring bike is what they are really in many respects you've got the clearance you've got the mudguard eyelets you can equip them with all of the racks even though that's not the the standard thing now you've got to be bike packing not not rack riding now um but they are very much of that 1950s rough stuff fellowship bike yeah i mean touring iron in terms of what in terms of what you can do, yes, but they are a lot lighter mm. in terms of slinging them over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. I think the the, the 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 feeling of riding them, and and and, and this is what I like about the bike that, that I'm I'm riding is that it's got a sort of tour, touring bike wheels, or even bigger than touring bike wheels, um, um, tires rather, and um, but the kind of riding position and feel of 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 a liveliness of a of a road bike um it's that sort of it's the best of both worlds in a way because a touring bike when it's unladen can feel like unnecessarily sort of mm. leaden can't mm. it and people do like that excitement of um of, of a little bit of a twit a little bit of twitch mm. in the bike so do you have a bike that you research your books with or are you uh, you have a quiver, as they say, a quiver of bikes, <laughs> and you'll just choose that one for the that particular uh, route. Well, I I've ridden a succession of, of basically yeah steel Audax type touring bikes. Um, none of them have been quite right for me um, for one reason or another, but they've always been like secondhand bikes that I've sort of built up myself or or whatever. I had a little flirtation with Moltons, mm. uh, but that was a while ago. Um, uh, but no, uh, the, the new bike is a bike built by my friend Richard Hallett, mm. who um, is a former cycling journalist. I'm, I'm sure you mm-hmm. know him. Um, wrote, technical editor of Cycling Weekly, who now lives in West Wales, so not too far from me, and is a frame builder. But has learnt to build build frames and um, building some lovely bikes. And so he's built me a version of his um, model, which is called a 650 be adventure um so uh, it's it's a quite it's quite traditional um in the sense that it's got rim brakes um and it's got um it's got low gears it's steel um it's got a front handlebar bag like a the traditional french style it's kind of like a french randonneur type bike um yeah um but i've also got a um a bike like more of a like um a, a you know it, that's a hand-built um bicycle which you know cost cost me a fair bit um and so i don't like to just sort of thrash that around all winter um and so i do have a bike which is a disc braked bike um with uh, chunk, uh big tires that i ride in the winter um uh so yeah but no, i've got a lot of, i've got too many bikes carlton i need to I, I, i've got too many no, bikes. No, i need to get rid jack of there's no such thing please please disabuse yourself of that notion there is no such thing as too many bikes. So where can people buy the book? So let's let's plug where people can buy the book, Jack. The book. Books, well, they books. can buy it from me. <laughs> I'm selling it directly and this response has been amazing. So I, I will sign it for you with, with my autograph or I'll dedicate it to you um, if you'd like that. Or if you want to give it to someone, I'll I'll dedicate it to them. You can. There's a way of letting me know about that on the website. So the web shop is at Lost Lanes dot co dot uk 
Um, but it's also available on um, on the online. I mean, this is a terrible time to be launching a new book because all the bookshops are shut because of the lockdown. So I'm having to do a real push on direct sales. Um, but Amazon have it. Waterstones, I think, have it on their online store. Um, you can get it as a Kindle book and it is um, half price. Um, I think it's like seven ninety nine on Kindle and it's £16.99 on the for the real the actual flesh and blood book um or whatever and and i think amazon have it of a bit of a bit of, bit of a discount um as they usually do and 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 same with i've got all the other, all the other books are also available in all those sort of sources um if if your independent bookshop is selling is, is doing deliveries or whatever then um um, that they may have they may may have it or may be able to get it in um yeah i think people have really enjoyed looking at it in lo- i thought this is going to be a terrible um how am i going to launch a book when there's no press coverage there's no no travel features they're going to be about it I, I, i'm not going to be able to extract anything to the magazines and stuff but i think it's early days but i think that people have really enjoyed in lockdown the chance to dream, dream. yeah that's what I'm say, dream. kind of ride mm. that the, 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 the rides that they'll do when lockdown eases mm-hmm. and um and and i think that you know, planning a bike ride is is a great it's a it's a wonderful thing to do isn't it it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to pull out the maps and start researching things and with the internet you can do so much research at home you don't need to go to the library mm. or anything um i think planning i mean i, I i've i'd love to yeah, I'd love to hear what everyone is, what everyone, what, what everyone's planning. Um, it'd be a great, a great um, thing to know the kind of rides that people are wanting to do. Because when it's only when something gets taken away from you that you really value it in, in a in a new mm. way, isn't it? So many years, I wrote a guidebook, and it was done by the, the, from the saddle of a, a bike, but it wasn't a bike book, and it was a guidebook to Lebanon. And this is just straight after the, the Civil War had ended. And I wrote, went in there as a cycle tourist, rode around, published a book. And you never know who's going to be buying this. You assume it's going to be independent uh, travelers. But when we actually looked at the, the sales, most of them were to expat Lebanese. And they were, they were mm. buying this guidebook to the country that they were born in um, because they hadn't been back for many, many years. And because I took color photography... They were using it as a way of 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 dreaming about their homeland and how they would revisit one day. So I'm assuming your books, certainly now, right now, I mean, normally it might be something different, but now it's going to be, yeah, that that dreaming angle that I want to do this in the future and 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 living vicariously through the pages of your book for their future. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting how travel and leisure travel is different in the age of Corona and whether people won't be able to fly long distances because it's going to be so much hassle. You know, the quarantine requirements of international travel are going to make it very difficult. So people are going to have to be thinking about doorstep adventures and what they can do in their backyard. And and actually, one thing that I should I should sort of say about 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 the books is that sure you can ride the routes that are in in the books that i've 
done for you and i've got and you've got the gpx files and the route sheets and all that that you can use to do exactly those routes but what i'm trying to communicate through the books is a sort of way in which a way of thinking about cycling that will empower people to do their own planning and dream up their own routes do their own explorations and become their own sort of guidebook writer in a way um and and i, and I think that is that is from what i can tell that has happened um and i've done some talks um i, I did a talk at stanford's the map shop in london about you know pl- planning the perfect bike ride and and how how to get to grips with that sort of thing because you know some some people it again it's one of these issues that for a hardened, experienced cycle tourist such as you know yourself and and, and me, I suppose to a certain extent, um, you know, it's second nature to us. It's what we do. We just get out the map and we go for it. Um, I think if you if you if you've grown up with maps, the only maps you've ever really seen are Google Maps on your phone. Then you really have no idea of like how to plan a satisfying, enjoyable, and safe cycle tour. And so I think that there is a lot of discovery that people can do, particularly people who've been, again, who sort of digital natives who've been weaned on on Google Maps. There's so much information that it doesn't contain there, and so it's not. And it's not just about mapping, um, but I, I, I'd love the idea of people adapting my routes or 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 just coming up with their own rides in that style, where it's not about kings of the mountains and it's not about you know threshold blood values or whatever whatever the whatever the sport people are into it's about exploration about stopping and looking and feeling but to to be fair here and i'm not not knocking you here but you've got simon warren there who is talking his guidebooks in they are in effect guidebooks are, are talking about you know hill climbs and people will cycle many many miles to get to you know his 100 climbs and people are just getting out there for that reason. So it's still actually, it's touring. It's just, it's on a svelte road bike, but it's still touring. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I had a conversation with Simon Mottram, um, the founder and owner of, or co-owner, I don't know how much of he, he owns anymore, of Rafa um, a while ago. And he said, yeah, look, Jack, basically what we all do is touring. We just can't call it that. <laughs> It's a good point. Mm. Well, they're not, you know, they're, they're not, how many people wearing Rafa are, are actually in bike races? Mm. You know, where, where there's a prize for the winner. Yes. If, I, if I'm saying I'm going out for a ride, I'll often, and if I'm on my Lycra, I'll say I'm going for a training ride, is what I say. But I'm not. I'm actually going exploring and I'm going riding on a tour. So, yeah, it's a good point. I'm not, I'm not actually training because I'm not training for a race. I'm just using a bike to tour. Yeah, and no one wants. I mean, the tour. It's funny because the Tour de France. Okay, tour in the in the word in the phrase Tour de France is great. It's a Tour de France. Um, it sounds appealing and exciting, but nobody wants to be a tourist, do they? Tourists, uh, tourists, yucky, nasty people. Um, you know, having egg and chips and 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 fizzy and warm lager on the Costa Brava. No one wants to be a tourist. We want to be adventurers. We want to be explorers. We want to be travellers. And so, you know, I think by cycle touring, it, unfortunately, it's not. It's not. It, it's not got the 
the touring is not the tour of the Tour de France as in as in a journey. Um, it's the tour of the tourist, the tourism, and 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 that's a negative association. But I, I do I do worry sometimes that that what gets the media attention is people pushing themselves to the limit. Um, and I don't know that you necessarily always need to push yourself to the limit. I, I, I'm not saying that it's wrong to push yourself to the limit, but it does seem as though that is the dominating way in which cycling is presented. It's either either sporting limits like Tour de France racing, that kind of thing, or it's adventure limits. It's like how how many days can you ride without sleeping? Like what hardships can you endure on, on crossing this desert on a bicycle isn't that, isn't that your um, previous show because yeah. you've just had uh mr walker on haven't you you've had ian on there uh talking about his his long distance rides in which he is you know, yeah, not getting any I, sleep and i did quiz him a bit about that about about i mean probably not as much as i should have done i think he did he did he did give a good explanation of what the appeal is and that he feels it's really nice to have like a project and a kind of and a, and a, and a, and an event that he's working towards that gives him a sense of direction and a mission and an idea of of going further than he can ever go before. But I think the people who do that sort of thing are are not the mo- not the majority of us. They are exceptional people, and we celebrate them and laud them and crown them with laurels and and all that kind of stuff. And we admire them and we enjoy reading their exploits. Um, but it's, it's it doesn't need to be that way. But yet that is what dominates. Because if you want to get attention for a bicycle ride in the media, it has to be something extreme. It has to be something that's never been done before, a first, or it has to be you know you got caught by a, uh, attacked by a bear or or some sort of hardship. Um, and I don't. I think you can just use the bicycle as a way of travelling. That is just the best way of traveling that there is and i think that's as simple as that and if that doesn't sell newspapers unfortunately and doesn't get people um you know with massive instagram followings or whatever i don't know uh, it, it doesn't have to be extreme jack thank you very I think much we all know this in our heart of hearts no no i was going to wrap this up actually uh yeah no 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 go go ahead I, wrap the show up without me blathering no on. no no it's, it's fine you're a professional blatherer that's what you that's what you do um <laughs> <laughs> maybe you actually talked more about yourself on on this show than you than you've talked in in, in previous shows so if i've uh, introduced people to uh, your history uh, in politics and with farm subsidies in the eu then then i'm very happy to have, have broadened people's knowledge into uh, jack thurston thanks to jack thurston for a diverting couple of hours there his books really are sumptuous and inspiring and i heartily recommend them but don't go listening to his podcast though it's awful yep okay i'm kidding uh, the bike show is great Of course, it's really, really Catholic in its cycling tastes, and that's in the non-religious sense of Catholic. And I'm glad Jack is back in the game, even if it is only sporadic at the moment. This has been episode 243 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was bigging up the two 
200th episode of the show, and now we're closing in on 250 episodes. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode, I hope, is with academic Rachel Aldred, the Metropolitan Police's Andy Cox, and Greater Manchester's Cycling and Walking Commissioner, Chris Boardman. It's already recorded, um, but we had an issue with uh, Naughty Gremlins, and I'm waiting on a bit of audio repair from Chris. If that happens, and he's a busy guy, uh, I'll get the show out to you as soon as possible. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.